Welcome to the Bethel Church Austin Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this sermon by a special guest speaker. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit www.bethelchurchaustin.com. I am so excited to be here, and I don't mean like just for tonight, for this right now, but to be here as part of Bethel Austin. Um, my family and I, we moved here at the beginning of November, and it's just been amazing being here with you guys, really. I love it. I love it. You guys make church fun. I love going after the Lord with people that are excited about it, that are passionate about it, that enjoy it, you know, because this is how it's meant to be. I believe it with everything. You know, I'm... By nature, I think I can be a little quieter. I'm from California, so I can be kind of laid back. Uh, I do have an introverted side, but there's this extreme side to me also. There's something about when things are extreme, they're exciting. They, they get you going. They get your attention, right? And I realized that this is what we're all supposed to have. We're all supposed to have this in us, this tension, right? And, I mean, many of you know Joaquin's testimony. You've heard him share it before. Um, I was right along with him at the David Hogan meeting when we first encountered the Lord. So, if you know anything about David Hogan, he's extreme. Anybody in here ever heard of David Hogan? Ever heard him preach or seen any videos on him, right? This guy is extreme. And so... For me, a laid-back, introverted kid from California, I had experienced some Christianity. I'd gone to church with some friends and stuff. But when I went to that David Hogan meeting, and I saw that dude up there in his flannel and cowboy boots just pacing the stage, Jesus, Jesus. He'd look out there, Jesus. Like, we weren't ready yet. And I'm like, whoa. I'm, I'm sitting there like, dude, this guy's intense. He was extreme, and then he started telling these testimonies and stories about seeing dead people raised up. Like, not a little bit dead. Like, dead, dead for days. Like, bodies laid out. Yeah, stinky dead. (laughs) That's right. You know, he was going out into these remote villages in Mexico to, to share the gospel or to go around and do their services and he'd show up and they're like, oh, Brother David, we've been waiting for you. You need to come pray for so-and-so. And he'd walk up and they're like laying on the ground dead for days. You know, he'd pray and see him raised up. That's extreme. You know, he's sharing testimonies about driving his, his truck, not just through water, not like, you know, there's a, a lot of standing water and he's like, I'm not sure I'm going to make it, like, the rivers have flooded and driving his truck underwater. Yeah. I'm not an auto mechanic, but I know cars don't do that. <laughs> right? And actually working, going underwater, coming up on the other side of this flooded river and getting to the village that he's supposed to go preach to. And here I am looking at this guy like, I've never, ever heard anybody talk about Jesus like this. I've never heard anybody talk about faith or religion or any of these things like this. This is extreme. I like it. I want it. And that was basically my introduction into the kingdom. And from there, it, it just pretty much took off. Yeah, I had my ups and downs, but like 
that's what in my spirit I responded to. There is something of this extreme faith of this man. There is something that he was so sold out and willing to go anywhere and do anything that got my attention. Where I said, okay, if this is what Christianity is about, I want that. You know, I went to Sunday church with some of my friends. We sang the songs. We did the things. I was like, oh, okay. It wasn't bad, but okay. But man, when David Hogan was up there, I'm like, yes. Something came alive inside of me and captured me. And I'm like, I want this. And, you know, I started going after the Lord. I mean, no, no real Christian background. And I started going after the Lord pretty hard. You know, it was that extreme thing in me. I, I remember shortly after coming to the Lord, I saw a video of Reinhard Bonnke. Another very mellow, my, uh, mellow man, you know, really just kind of takes it easy. He's seen a, a few people come to the Lord. <laughs> right? <laughs> Millions. And, and I remember watching him and he's sharing this testimony about when he was a, new, or a, a younger man before he went out and started the crusades and things that he was doing about an evangelist coming to their church and how he was hungry for this and he wanted to go out and he wanted to reach the lost and he was so sure it was like this guy was sharing testimonies and it was the same thing that extreme faith that was in this man was stirring in Reinhard Bonnke and he was like oh I want this I want to go out to the streets and he was sure his friends were all feeling the same thing right he, it was kind of one of those things like, oh, after church, is going to be so awesome. We're all going to go out onto the streets, and we're just going to see, you know, hundreds of people come into the kingdom. And after church, he was so pumped up, and he went to his friends. He's like, come on, let's go out to the streets. Let's go preach the gospel. And one by one, they all had excuses, and they didn't go. And he was like, okay, I, I'm going to go if it's just me. And he takes his, you know, little box and whatever he did, and he goes out there and preaches the gospel. And something in that. In, in that message, this God in me, I was like, I want to be like that. I, I want to reach the lost. I want to pray for the sick. I, I, want, I, want, I want to see people come into the kingdom. So I went and I parked outside of a grocery store, like a big old grocery store like here. It'd be like an H-E-B or something, you know, or a big super Walmart. And I just stood by the little electric, you know, doors that open and close. And every single person that went in or went out of that store, I offered to pray for. And I tried to share Jesus with. It's like, I didn't know what I was doing. I was new. But something in me was like, if this is how we get there, I want to go for it. And how many of you know as a young, zealous, on-fire believer, as you're sharing these things and you think everybody's like this, right? You think every Christian is extreme and radical like this. And you're zeal, you know, you're just talking to people. Oh, yeah. And what happens? Everybody's right there with you, right? No. <laughs> no. You know, people are like, oh, it's, it's great, it's great. But you might want to calm down a little bit. You don't want to burn out. You, 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 you have to have a balance. And I kept hearing this word a lot, balance. That's kind of what I want to talk to you about tonight. Um, also, early on, after a few years of serving the Lord, I, I just had this burning in my heart for missions, and I went out into the mission field, and I got connected with um, the ministry that my wife's family had started, Gateways Beyond, and uh, it was a Messianic Jewish ministry, and for me, it wasn't too hard to come into because, like I said, I was unchurched, and I was reading the Bible, and pretty much everybody in the book is Jewish. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying. 
it predominantly happens in Israel and the surrounding regions, right? Egypt, you know, they spread out a little bit, but it's pretty much focused right there. You know, they're, they're keeping these feasts, they're doing all these things. I'm just reading my Bible, and I show up in this island of Cyprus around these crazy, spirit-filled, messianic Jewish believers, and they're praying in tongues, they're, they're going after God for hours on end, they're seeing miracles, signs, and wonders, and then we sit down at the Shabbat table, light candles, you know, put hats on our head, and, and do these prayers, and I'm like, okay, this is what I see in the book. <laughs> Come on. Right? To me, it didn't matter if it's in the book. If this is how God says to do it, I'm going to do it. I'm all in. There's not a like, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't do this, or maybe I shouldn't do that, or I got to find somewhere in between. No, it's like if if this is what he's telling me to do, this is what I'm going to do. And, and these guys were radical. I'm telling you, we'd go into the worship room. We were supposed to start at 8 o'clock. It was a discipleship training program. And we're supposed, supposed to have two hours of worship. And then we'd have, you know, these major international leaders from all over the world fly into this tiny island to spend time in this intimate classroom setting with, you know, 15 to 20 students to teach for four hours. I mean, I'm talking people that, you know... I'm not even going to drop names or anything, but they fill stadiums. And they're here for 20 people. But God would show up, and our two hours would go to three. Our three hours would go to four. Our four would go to five. Our five would go to six. I'm not kidding or exaggerating. We had days where we started worship at 8 o'clock in the morning. We'd go through lunch, and we'd finish just about in time to go for dinner. We, we'd finish at like 6 o'clock in the evening sometimes. And whoever was leading the school, some years later that ended up being me, but whoever was leading the school would have to go to that international, you know, big wigs speaker who's come to spend time with 15 to 20 students when normally they're preaching to thousands and say, I'm sorry, but um, we're postponing your class because Jesus is here. <laughs> he showed up and we just want to be in his agenda, right? So they were radical also. And I, and I found myself kind of, over the years, connecting to different streams and different people, all extreme. And I found myself, you know, I'd come home, come back to California, and now my brother's in Bethel Redding, and I'm meeting people there, and they're asking me about what I do and where I serve, and I'm telling them about this Messianic Jewish community that I'm a part of. And, and it was always weird, you know, because people never quite know where to put these things. And they're like, well, you don't eat pork. No. You know you can eat pork? Yeah. You, you keep these feasts? Yeah. You know you don't have to, right? Yeah. So, well, what, it, and, and they're always trying to, like, figure out these things. And I found myself as I was kind of always op- moving between these different streams of having this conversation that kept coming back to this word that people often use of balance. And over the years, and especially talking with uh, my brother-in-law, my wife's oldest brother, who is, is the international director of, of the ministry, Gateways Beyond, um, I found over the years that there's something that I wouldn't use the word anymore, balance. But I would use this word, or this phrase, dynamic tension. And that's what I want to talk to us about tonight. That's what we're going to get into. But first, 
I want to dig into this, into the word here. If you have your Bibles, why do we even say that? <laughs> you should have your Bible. Pull it out, whatever form it's in, it doesn't matter, but pull it out. And I'm just going to read, but we're going to start in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through 20. But before we read, and as you're finding your place, I want to tell you this. In this theme, talking about, you know, balance versus dynamic tension, I want to tell you this. I want to set this stage with this statement. We do not serve an either-or God. Again, we do not serve an either or God. I'm going to read and then we'll go back to that. Okay, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 18 through 20. Uh, I'm going to read in two translations the whole thing. So first in ESV, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no. But in him, it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Now I'm going to read it out of the Passion Translation. I know some of you guys like that one, so we'll, we'll go ahead and hit this one too, right? It's all good. Come on. I, I mean, I could just geek out, you know, and just read a ton of translations, and we could just feast on this, and that would be it for the night. But we got places to go. But here, in the Passion, same verses. For as God is true to his word, my promise to you was not a fickle yes when I meant no. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he is the one whom Timothy, Silas, and I have preached to you. And he has never been both a yes and a no. He has always been and always will be for us a resounding yes. For all God's promises find their yes, find their yes of fulfillment in him. And as his yes and our amen ascend to God, we bring him glory. Come on. I'm going to say it again. We do not serve an either or God. I want you to say this, all of his promises, find their yes in him. How many of his promises? Are you sure? Are you convinced of that? Come on, all of God's promises. We do not have to pick and choose between God's promises. God's not saying you can have this. Or you can have that. He's not saying you can have either or. He's saying you can have it all. Come on. Shane was telling us that, exhorting us about that during communion. Is we are co-heirs. It has all been made available to us. Say it again. Say all of his promises. We have to be careful with this though. Because sometimes we do try to pick and choose. Sometimes we try to pick and choose of what part of God's word we're going to listen to or focus on. Sometimes we try to pick and choose on, on how we're going to walk in following God. 
Sometimes we want to pick and choose of our expression of our faith. We often find ourselves in this place of picking and choosing. But it says that all of his promises find their yes and amen in him. Is that right? I think it's sometimes difficult for us to fully grasp this concept of how do we really, how, how is that possible? How can I have it all? How, really? I mean, it's, it's so funny. We, we sit together on a Saturday night, we talk about these things and they seem simple. But if we were to open this book and just start to pull out some of the promises of God, I mean, we would exhaust ourselves. I don't even know how long the service would take for us to simply try to comb through the word of God and pick out all the promises, all the things he says about us and to us. If we really try to wrap our head around that, that wait, you mean I get all of that? It's hard, it's hard for us to comprehend why. I think it's hard for us because we are experiencing a singular existence. And what I mean by that is we're confined to time and space. We can only be physically in our body in one place at one time. We have a singular existence. Right? We're we're used to questions like, would you like this or that? I drive my wife crazy all the time because she'll say something like, what would you like for dinner, chicken or steak? And you know what my answer usually is? Yes. (laughs) What would you like for dessert? Would you like cake or ice cream? Yes. That's because of this profound revelation that I have. (laughs) My stomach sits outside of time and space. No, seriously, though, if we realize that we view the promises of God, we view the word of God, we view our relationship and our walk of God through this lens of trying to relate everything to our singular existence that's confined by time and space, it's hard for us to grasp or to be fully open to receiving everything that he has. By nature, we think, oh, well, you know, I can get some of this. Or maybe I could get some of that. But to just say, no, I can have it all is beyond us. It, it, it's, it's supernatural to be able to truly stand in that place and say, oh, I can have it all. But we serve an eternal God who sits outside of time and space. Amen? That's impressive to me. I went through all that, and it's like, we, you know, God sits outside of time and space. Amen. <laughs> Amen. The, I, I don't know if you guys do this like I do, but sometimes I just, like, get my brain all twisted up trying to, trying to wrap it around some of these things. He sits outside of time and space. He's eternal. How do you define eternity? Right? There's no beginning. There's no end. 
There's literally no starting point. You can't go back to the beginning and say, okay, well, it's, it all started here. I mean, we have the beginning of creation. But what about before that? There was no start point. There was no starting line. God didn't just show up one day and say, okay, I'm here. I'm going to start making stuff. He always has been, who was and is and is to come. He sits outside of eternity. I mean, think about that. I remember I was having this conversation with our oldest, uh, Jacob. He's 12 now. I think he was, what, maybe four at the time? We were back in Cyprus. And I could understand uh, he was trying to wrap his head around this concept of, of how big God is. He wanted to compare him to something. See, here's a, it's a great example. My son, who at four years old, was already used to his singular existence, was trying to understand God. And he's saying, Abba, is God as big as our house? Our house was not that big. <laughs> we were missionaries. <laughs> and I said, no, buddy, he, he's way bigger than our house. He said, Abba, is his hand as big as our house? No, he's way bigger than that. Is he as big as is the village? No, he's bigger than that. And he kept going. And finally, uh, you know, me being the sharp, sharp one that I am, it took me a little while to catch on to it. But I realized what he was trying to do. He was trying to understand. He was, his little mind, his understanding was grappling with the concept of an eternal God. How big is God, was what he was asking. Please explain to me how big he is. I mean, we sing these songs. We understand he's big. I, I understand that he's all-powerful, all-knowing. But how big is that? And he was trying to, you know, and so then I tried to explain it to him the best I could. You know, I'm trying to break down eternity for a four-year-old. He's deep, but he was four. <laughs> and so I'm trying to explain. It. Buddy, he always was. There's no beginning to him. There's no end to him. You can't measure him because there's nowhere to start the measuring tape. And then there's nowhere it ends. It, he just is. And, I, you know, I'm feeling like a real great dad because here I am. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. He doesn't. There's no beginning. There's no end. Do you get it? <laughs> to a four-year-old, right? So I'm like, oh, I'm, uh, this is, you know, epic dad fail. But that night... I'm putting him to bed, and we had this thing, you know, we would do it. I love you to the moon and back. I, you know, I love you to the sun. I love you to the moon and back a hundred times, you know, always kind of one-up each other. And he busted this out on me. I'm putting him to bed, and I said, I love you, buddy. And he looks at me and says, Abba, I love you as much as God is big. our budding theologian there, right? <laughs> something in his spirit, something in his four-year-old understanding grasped the idea that there was absolutely nothing bigger than God. Maybe he, he didn't quite understand eternity, I don't know. But he knew in that moment, ha-ha, I have something that trumps everything. I'm going to beat you to the punch. You will have no comeback. You can't say anything after that. I got gotcha. And at four years old, he, he hit me with that one. And that story has always stuck with me. But we have to understand that. We have to understand 
that we cannot try to pull God into our reality and limit him in his word by our understanding or by our singular experience. We have to realize that we are seated in heavenly places. We have to allow ourselves to be transformed into his image, into who he is, so that we can receive the fullness of him. Amen? All right, now i got to find where I was on my notes. Start telling stories about my kids, I get lost. Oh, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> oh. So I think the, part of the reason I'm bringing this up and everything is when we try to pull God into the singular experience or existence that we have, something that we can tend to fall back on is focusing on one thing, Right? I mean, how many of you do this at work or anywhere else? It's like if you have, if, if I could just have one thing I could do well. If I could just understand this. You know, it's like you're giving me a hundred things, but I, I, let me just finish this one first, right? I don't want to embarrass you, babe, but my wife is a checklist kind of person. Woo! Yeah. Good for you guys. <laughs> I am learning to be a checklist kind of person. <laughs> But, you know, to where we can have our, our list and, and go through one at a time and check things off. Because if I can focus on this one thing and complete this, if I can master this, if I can fulfill this, if I can do this, I can check it off the list and move on. And focus on the next thing and check it off and move on. It's very efficient. It's a good way to get stuff done. Right? But we can often bring that into our relationship with God. We can often bring that into how we receive or relate to the Word of God. How we, re, how, we re, um, how we basically just operate in our relationship with God. We can take one thing and kind of camp out on it. That's not always bad, but it's not always good. Sometimes... We do this, and it can really throw us off. Or really more than that, if we hear somebody say something that conflicts with our singular existence, or our current circumstances, it can even offend us. Because whatever I'm going through, I, I latch onto something, and then I focus on that. And again, that's not always bad, but it can lead us astray. I remember one time my brother was preaching, and he's preaching on this message that I'm sure you've all heard before, God is in a good mood. Right? It's a great message. Something we can hear more of. But I remember there was somebody there who had just experienced great loss. And they were in this season of mourning. And when they heard the message, they were actually offended. And in their mind, they're thinking, how could you say something like that? Like that it was arrogant to, to, to say something like that. You can't just say blanketly, God's in a good mood. Don't you know this person just died? And, da, da, da. and it was very difficult for them to receive. But is the truth God is in a good mood? Yes. But is the truth also that God was grieving with that person? Yes. 
See, we can't try to filter God through our singular existence because what that does is divide us. What that does is says he's either this or that. He's either in a good mood or he's either grieving. But see, he sits outside of time and place. He's not, he, he's not limited to, our, to a singular existence to where he can only be grieving in that moment or only be in a good mood in that moment. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere all the time. He knows everything and he is all powerful. So at the same exact time, he can be grieving with somebody who's grieving and has just gone through great loss. And at the same exact time, he can be rejoicing with somebody who's rejoicing. I mean, if you think about this in a global context, I mean, somebody's getting saved like every minute. All of heaven stops and rejoices when somebody gets saved. So that means there is a constant party going on in heaven because people are getting saved all the time. Look at that, making a mess already, getting sloppy up here. Whoo! Yes, that is a truth. But do you think God weeps when an unborn child is killed? Do you think God is grieved when somebody's martyred? Yeah, he, he, he sees it as a beautiful thing, but also it's a grieving thing. If you lose a loved one, he knows what you're going through. He knows if they, if they know him, they're, they're you know, coming into the kingdom, they're walking into eternity. And so it can be both a time to rejoice and a time to grieve. But he's not limited to a singular existence. He's not limited to only experiencing one emotion at a time. He's not limited to our lens or our filter. He's not limited to our boxes. But sometimes we try to limit him to that. And sometimes what we do out of, out of offense or out of... Um, whatever the motivation might be, is we seek this thing called balance. And what I want to say is that sometimes as we seek balance, what we're really seeking is our own comfort and a sense of control. Because we call it balance, but what we're saying is, no, 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 if you go too far that way, it's extreme and I get uncomfortable. Or that offends this in me. So I think two things happen in that. Either when that happens, we can swing way far the other way to, to counterbalance this experience, right? It's a very natural fleshly response. If you're, if you're anybody ever tried to like canoe or kayak, right? And you're, and you're doing it and, and the canoe starts to tip, everybody just goes real still and it's like totally cool, right? No. We all look like idiots. It starts to tip this way, and we go that way. We're like, oh, oh. Right? And you're trying to, like, balance. We're fighting for control. Oh, I started to go too far that way. I better jump this way real fast. And we can do that in our walk with God if we're not careful. We can, we can have these extreme responses, and you see it. The church is divided by people that have been offended because they see this thing, and they think, oh, no, I'm not comfortable with that. That's too extreme. So I'm going to swing this way to counteract that. If God's in a good mood, we're going to be the God is always serious camp. You're going to be drunk over there, and we're going to be sober over here. 
It's, we're laughing, but it's sad because it's true. We end up with these crazy extremes. We end up with these splits and these divisions because we try to fit God through our filters. We were created in his image. We can't try to form him or transform him to our image. But we try to do that all the time as a church. Or the other thing we sometimes do is, you know, try to find that middle ground. Well, you're so extreme over there that way, and you're so extreme over there that way, and I don't want to be an heir, so I'm going to play it safe. I'm going to be right in the middle. Right? You're too extreme for me, and you're too extreme for me. I'm finding that straight and narrow. I'm safe. I'm right in the middle. How could God ever find fault with me? Because I didn't go too far that way or too far that way. I'm parked right in the middle. The problem is you're parked. <laughs> See, think of it like scales, right? You know, like the old school kind. When we think of the Bible days and there's scales, there, right? You have this thing and there's a, a platform on each side, a place you can put a good on one side and your weight's on the other side. And if it balances out, you know, you know how much this thing weighs, right? So sometimes when we're seeking balance, people go right in the middle and it's like, okay, I want just enough of the Holy Spirit and I want just enough of the word or I want just enough of the law and I want just enough of grace. I want just enough of this and just enough of that. I'm I'm right in the middle. But you know what happens? We end up neutralized if we stay there. See, in 2 Timothy 3, it talks about the end times, and it talks about uh, this generation, and goes on this list of wickedness and all these perverse things, and at the end of it, it says, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such, many will turn away. Wow, that hits me a lot harder, I guess. Come on. That's, I'm, I, I remember the first time I read that, that scared the hell out of me. <laughs> Literally. I'm like, oh, Jesus, I better not be faking this. Because if I got a form of godliness, if I'm trying to pretend like I'm a Christian, but your power is not actually moving in my life, whoo. But we see it all around us. Oh, thank you, Jesus. So I want to caution us that we're not to focus on one thing, but we're to focus on one person. I'm going to read this scripture to you. This is Colossians 1, 15 through 17. I'm just going to read it. He is the divine portrait, the true likeness of the invisible God, and the firstborn heir of all creation. For in him was created the universe of things, both in the heavenly realm and on the earth, all that is seen and all that is unseen, every seat of power, realm of government, 
principality and authority, it all exists through him and for his purpose. He existed before anything was made. And now everything finds completion in him. We were created in his image. This is, this is what we're supposed to see. He is the express image of God. We have the perfect example that came for us. We don't have to figure this out on our own, thank God. Some of you are more confident than I am. pausing because I want to make sure I get this. I want to make sure we get this. I don't want to be so bound to my notes or trying to get through this that we miss the main thing. It is all about him. I know that's very easy to say. I know that's very easy for us to say amen to, but I want us to like stir our spirit right now. I want us to stir our understanding to a new way right now. Every single one of us at this point has some type of experience with church, whether it's one night, right, or decades. But this does not define him. Our walk, our singular existence doesn't define him. He should define our walk. He should define our existence. But we can look at all of these things around us and think we know him based on those things. And say, oh, oh, this is where Jesus is, or, or this is what Jesus does. And we can actually take our eyes off of him. We can get so set in a routine of, I know how to worship. I come and I, I raise my hands, or I do this, or I do that. You know, I lay down. I put my hands out like this. And I can miss the fact that I'm communing with a living God. And I can come into that place of worship and not even ask him, God, what do you want to do? God, what are you feeling? What's on your heart? Abba, what are you saying right now? What do you want to do? No, no, I, I know, I know. God's good. He's in a good mood. He's here. He's going to release healing. We go after healing. That's always good. God's always here for that. But you realize we can run right past him? In our zeal, in our experience, we can run right past him because we think we know how to do it. But he is the perfect example for us. And he's always speaking. He's always leading. He's always guiding us. This is difficult sometimes because... It appears sometimes that the word can contradict itself. But we know the word never contradicts itself, right? God does not oppose himself. God is not, you know, having any identity crises. We already read it. It's not a fickle yes. It's not a yes when it really means no. God is completely clear in where he is on what he means. 
on what his word says. But there's these things that can seem to oppose each other. These, these ideas, like the first shall be last. Okay, see, everybody's sitting there like, I know we've all heard it a hundred times, but, oh yeah, yeah, that's normal. Explain that one to a four-year-old. Let's go out onto the street to completely unchurched people and explain to them that first shall be last. Do we wrestle with what that means and what God is saying to us, or do we just take it as more Christianese? Blessed are you when you are persecuted. Come again? What? We look at things like the fear of God. We see it in Proverbs 1-7, and the love of God in Ephesians. They seem to oppose each other. They seem to contradict each other. I, I've had this conversation with unbelievers. You know, they, they've been around enough to hear some of the word, to know a little bit about it. And they say, well, well, how can your God, you know, do this? Or what, is it the fear of God or is it the love of God? How many of you ever heard this one? Well, if he's such a loving God, how come he, how come he lets bad things happen? Right? The world wants to to start this struggle where God's opposing himself or that the word contradicts himself. Actually, Satan started that. That's, that's like the OG plot of Satan right there. To no, Seriously. To try to make God out to be a liar. In the garden, did God really say? Surely you won't die. Right? What about the goodness of kindness of God that we know leads us to repentance? It's in Romans 2, 4. But then there's also the chastening discipline of God that we see in Hebrews 12, 5, and 6. Sometimes we want to focus on one thing. I, chastening, discipline. Psh, I'm over here. Like, I'm in the kindness camp. I'm, I'm comfortable with this extreme. That over there makes me uncomfortable. The fear of God. Uh-uh. I'm over here. The love of God. Is God conflicted? Does God oppose himself? So why do we see these extreme things? Why does it seem like they oppose each other? Because this is what creates dynamic tension. It's not about contradicting. It's about a God who sits outside of time and space. It's about a God who is the one who created every emotion that we will ever experience. That he has created everything. That he understands everything that has ever happened, that is happening right now and will ever happen. He encompasses all. So he's not contradicting himself, but he has covered everything. So this is how I believe we are to pursue God then. When we see these things, and it seems like these contradictions, what he's actually trying to do is hold us in this tension. Not to seek balance. Well, we're going a little too far that way, guys. Let's pull back. 
you guys are getting a little too happy in worship. Let's bring it down a little bit. Come over here. We're going to play a slow song now. Marquita, take it easy. You're getting people excited. Right? Oh, now they're falling asleep. Let's pick it up again. Or, no, we just park right in the middle. We'll just park in the middle. We'll put one hand up. We'll have one eye open. This should be safe. This pleases God. No. I believe God does these things to keep us moving. That's what dynamic tension does. It's called a walk with God. Why? You can't walk like this. How do you walk? Right? One foot after the other. Is it the love of God or is it the fear of God? Is it his loving kindness or is it his discipline? He keeps us in this tension which keeps us moving. But see, when we want to focus on one thing too much and ignore another thing, what do we end up doing? Oh, buddy, I'm all about the love of God. Oh, no, no, no. It's all about his discipline. He's chastening us because we are his legitimate sons. And we just spin in circles. But he wants us to hold us in this tension. The other reason I believe that he creates this tension is what? That creates a reliance on him. Because if we have it all figured out, if we have a nice formula, okay, we're going to do five minutes of this song, and then we're going to bring it down to this song. Right? We're going to raise our hands here. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do that. We have a formula. Guess what? We don't need him anymore. I figured it out. I take one step with this, and then I take one step with that, and it's like, and all of a sudden, we're playing Bible hopscotch. You know? We're like, oh, I got it. Oh, heaven here. I made it. Come on. But we need to depend on him. Wake up in the morning. God, what are you doing? What's on your heart, God? Okay. You're opening your word and you're speaking to me about discipline because you love me and you're a loving father. And, and, I, and I maybe veered off a little bit. And then you come in with your loving kindness that leads me to repent of what I just did. Right? I mean, David, come on. King David. Anybody in here have a problem with King David? I want you to raise your hand if you do. Okay, good. Nobody. King David would write songs about how he loved the law of God. Oh, the law, the law. King David was a foreshadowing and a prototype of what was to come through Jesus. Jesus himself said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And there's nobody who is more full of grace than Jesus himself. See, don't get stuck. Uh-uh, I'm not under the law. It's all grace here, baby. Woo. (laughs) 
But he wants to keep us moving. He wants to keep us in this tension to where we have to rely on him. God, I don't understand this. I'm a, I'm a puny little human on this gigantic planet with billions of people. I can only physically be in one place at one time. And I'm reading this word that absolutely blows my mind. How can you tell me in Ephesians 3 that I'm being filled with all the fullness of God? Remember, this God, outside of time, no beginning, no end. He's immeasurable. He created everything. But I'm being filled with his fullness? What? I'm about to explode. We're in this tension of earth and heaven. We're here on earth, but we're seated in heavenly places. I, lo- I love this picture. This really blew me away when I was thinking about it in these terms. I hope I don't lose any of you guys here, but I did a little bit of art classes in college. It just was something I was interested in, so I decided I'd take some classes. I know all you guys were very serious in, if you went to college and never did that. So I took these art classes, and they were teaching us things about art. And something I discovered, and if you've done anything with art, you probably know this as well. Whenever you're trying to paint anything, you're trying to draw anything, you're trying to design anything, you're shooting a video, what do you do? You put that point that you want to focus on right in the middle, right? None of you guys took any art classes? Come on, Drew, you do video. You, what, what, rule, rule of thirds or something, right? Rule of thirds, okay. Make sure I'm not completely going off here, Drew, you got to keep me in check, right? When, you, when you're shooting a video frame, where do you put the person's head? Right in the middle? No. Rule of thirds, right? You want it, it's off, if off, offset. If you're painting a painting, you don't put that focal point, that thing that's going to draw somebody's eye, right in the middle. You know what we call that when something goes exactly in the middle? Dead center. Think about that for a second. Dead center. If you want a painting or something to come alive, you put the focal point off somewhere. And what's that do? It draws your eye across the painting. And if you're really good, you're getting advanced, you'll put multiple focus points throughout the piece. And then what that does is when you first glance at it, you'll see this thing and it first draws your eye to that. And then your eye will be drawn to something else. And then to something else. And then to something else. And it draws your eye across this piece of art so that you see the whole thing and it creates this movement. How much is God an artist? How great of an artist is the creator? And you're his masterpiece. He did not create us to be stagnant. He did not create us to huddle up and to try and find middle ground and be safe. He did not... call us or create us just to be reactionary and run away from the extremes that we find uncomfortable or offensive and create a whole separate camp. He created us to be sons and daughters. He created us to be children. What did it say when in the garden he would walk with them in the cool of the day? He created us to have movement. He created us to rely on him and to walk with him, shifting from one foot to the other. This is how we're to pursue God. 
You guys all know the story of the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Jesus takes his three inner circle and goes up on top of a mountain. And he goes to pray. And up on this mountain, he's transfigured. As he becomes white as snow, he starts to shine. What's he doing in that moment? Okay. I'll, I'll take a stab at it. I don't know 100%, but I believe he's revealing us. He's revealing us. We're created in his image. He's the firstborn. Right? We are to be like him. He's showing us what's possible. He's showing us what we are to aspire to. He's showing us this is what it looks like when you step outside of your singular existence. This is what it looks like when you step outside of time and space. This is what it looks like when you step outside of what you know and what you've experienced. And when you step into the fullness, when you step into all the promises of God, this is what it looks like. And he begins to shine. And then at the same time, what happened? Who appeared? I'm asking you guys because I see your fighting to stay awake here. You're both right. Moses and Elijah. This is important. Why? You have to understand, these were good Jewish boys, right? They follow the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one that they've been waiting for thousands of years, that have been prophesied by every prophet for thousands of years to come. They're following him. They go up to a mountain, and all of a sudden, he starts to shine. And then here comes Moses and Elijah. And what does Peter say? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, to, let's, do we have time? No, okay, I'm just going to go. I was going to read, I love how it says in the Passion Translation. He, and then Peter blurted out. God, it's good that we are here. All right? We do that sometimes. We just blurt out some stuff we shouldn't have said. And he says, let us make a tabernacle or a shrine, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. What you have to understand in their mindset, in their understanding, that Moses and Elijah represented everything. Moses represented the law of God. God came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with the man face to face and gave him the law that held, steered, directed, and preserved a people over millennia. Elijah was maybe one of the most anointed people to ever touch his feet on the earth. The Spirit of God used him in more ways than I mean, just endless stories. Praying and rain stops. Doesn't rain for three years. Prays and it rains again. That's a good trick. I mean, to, to the Jewish people, Moses was the fullness of the law. Elijah was the fullness of the anointing and power of God. They showed up with Jesus, and Peter's response is, I'm going to make three tabernacles, one for each of you. What happens? A cloud overshadows them, and a voice comes out from the cloud and speaks to them. They get afraid. They fall down, face down, and it says, This is my beloved son, and I'm, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. 
when they, then Jesus comes up to them, touches them, and says, don't be afraid. And when they open their eyes, what do they see? Come on, I know you guys read your Bibles. What do they see? Jesus. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah? Just Jesus. Do you hear me? You know where I'm going. Just Jesus. Is it this or is it that? Yes. All of his promises find their yes and amen in him. Is it the law of God that expressed his heart and, and, and showed how to preserve his people over millennia? Or is it the power and anointing of the Spirit of God that came upon a man to shut up the heavens and call down fire onto a mountain? Is it this or is it that? Yes. In Jesus, we find the fulfillment of everything. In Jesus, we find the perfect tension, the dynamic tension of the kingdom of heaven, what it looks like to walk as a man on the earth, both in naturally in time and space, and spiritually seated in heavenly places. We find our model, the image that we are to mimic, that we are to aspire to right there. And Jesus didn't pick and choose. He's not an either or God. Jesus was not here spinning in circles. Jesus wasn't hopping around on one foot. Jesus walked with his disciples. Jesus walked with God and he showed us how to walk. Really? That's it. That's all I have to say about that. No, really. We, we have to understand that Jesus is the word. The word became flesh. And it was Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of the Spirit of God. Is it word or is it spirit? Are you a church that reads the word, is grounded in the word, or going after the things of the Holy Ghost? Man. Making me work harder. Come on. It's a resounding yes. I'm going to go back to it where we started. 2 Corinthians 1, 18 through 20. For as God is true to his word, my promises to you were not a fickle yes when I meant no. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he is the one whom Timothy, Silas, and I have preached to you. And he has never been both a yes and a no. He has always been and always will be for us a resounding Yes, for all of God's promises find their yet the yes and fulfillment in Him. And as His yes and our amen ascend to God, we bring Him glory. What does our amen mean? What does amen mean? Let it be. Let it be. It's us saying we agree. He says yes. Is it spirit or truth? Is it... The word or this? Is it this or this? Is it this or this? And everybody's trying to box us into a, to the singular existence in time and space and wants us to choose one thing. And Jesus is standing from heaven shouting out with the resounding, yes! Are you a co-heir of God? Yes! 
I mean, we, we see all these things. Paul talks about that we are bond servants for the gospel. That we are slaves of Christ. But Jesus says that we are no longer servants, but he calls us friends. Which one is it? Yes! Because there's a fire shut up in my bones. When, when God comes upon me and I have to go stand outside the grocery store at the little beep, beep, beep door and pray for every single person that goes in and out because I'm a slave to the gospel. But when the enemy comes and tries to lie to me and get me down and beat me up and bring condemnation, I know that I'm a co-heir with Christ. It's not one or the other. It's not yes or a no. It's a resounding yes. Now we know, don't get, don't get wrong, it's not apply, it doesn't apply obviously to things of sin or anything else. But in him, when we're talking about God's promises, this isn't a, a license to sin. Well, he said yes. <laughs> it's all things. I can do everything. No. That's where you're a slave. Right? But in him, in his promises, when it comes to his word, we do not pick and choose. It's not some of his promises are for you. And some of his promises are for you. And some of them are for you guys over there. And then some over there. And if there's any left over that we could find in here, maybe you guys over there get some. No. Everyone. They're all yes and amen in him. So I want to exhort us as a church. I want to exhort us as believers. Don't limit ourselves. Don't limit ourselves to our singular existence to say, okay, well, today I'm walking in this promise. Today I'm going to lay hold of this. Or, or you know, I'm, I'm going to focus over here. Or maybe I can get this. But I, I, I can't have that right now because I'm focused on this. But let's, in childlikeness, in faith, keep ourselves dependent on God and every day show up and say, God, what are you doing? Where are you going? Right? Jesus himself said, I only do what I see the Father doing. That's the walk I'm talking about. One day he sees the Father doing something. Think about this. Jesus, the, these people come to Jesus that want to follow him. The rich young ruler, right? I've done all these things. What do I got to do? Sell everything and come and follow me. Oh, uh, maybe I'll catch up with you later. Right, Jesus, I want to come follow you, but first let me, you know, go bury my mother and father. Let me do this. Let the dead bury their dead. Right? That's harsh. Those people didn't follow him. Then he goes, crosses a lake, meets a guy with, with a legion of demons, a demoniac. Right? And he wants to get in the boat with him, and what's Jesus tell him? No, you're ready. Go into the town, tell the people what you did. I mean, come on. These guys, he's saying, come follow me, and they couldn't do it. It was too tough for them. The price was too high. And then over here, this guy who just previously was naked, cutting himself and bound in chains because of so many demons. And he says, no, 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 you don't need to follow me. Just go tell them what happened. That is a reliance on the Father. He was not boxed into something. He didn't have a formula. He didn't say, okay, well, you got to do this, 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 and this, and then you're going to be qualified. You'll be ready. He said, Abba, what do you say about this one? Okay, you go do this. What do you say about this one? Okay, you go and do this. What about this one over here? I really, God, please. What do you, okay, you're ready. Go for it. Right? 
that's what he's looking for in us, this childlike dependency and faith where we will walk after him every day. Where do you want me to place my foot? Where he holds us in this dynamic tension that keeps us moving forward. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit www.bethelchurchaustin.com.